Welcome to the podcast from the Temple. I'm Rabbi Peter Berg. And I'm Rabbi Lauren Filson Lapidus. This episode is brought to you by the Temple, Atlanta's oldest and youngest synagogue. Peter, we're in June. We're in June. It's really hard to imagine how we went from March to June so quickly. Well, the pollen count tells us that we, we've done it, and uh, we're over 80 degrees on a regular basis, so that's happened. We also know that the world is changing hour by hour and day by day, and it's um, every time we say, wow, what a moment for the temple, I, I really can't believe we're in this. It's true. The world is changing rapidly around us, and we also have a change at the temple because we have a new president. We do. And most people talk about, are you ready to take over the presidency right before the annual meeting begins? And this year was kind of the same. People were asking that same question of our new president, but they were doing it on Zoom before our first ever virtual annual meeting. And we are really excited that today we get to talk with our newest temple president about the opportunities and the challenges that come with being a leader at the temple amidst covid amidst some of the most intense protests and, and statements against racism that we've seen, and all of the changes that are ahead for the Jewish community. Absolutely. Kent Alexander is the right leader at the right time, and it's been already such an honor for us to work with him and partner with him and vision with him. Most people don't know this, but uh, to become president of the temple, it's a, it's a more than 10-year journey of leadership in the congregation. And it's, it's quite unusual. Um, in, in a lot of synagogues around the country, you know, someone becomes president, they're just sort of plucked out of a, out of a group and they become president instantly. Uh, but it's, it's, a, it's a, a leadership journey at the temple. So we have with us today Kent Alexander, and we're, we're so excited to talk with him. Hi, Kent. How are you? I'm great. Thanks for having me. Uh... Peter and Lauren. Thank you for being here. You've been president for two weeks, right? Exactly. How's that going so far? Uh, it's, it's going well at a distance. Uh, it's uh, looking forward to getting back into the temple, but we've got plenty on our plate, as you said, with, with COVID, with uh, you know, racial tensions and protests or, uh, and, uh, a looming economy and some uh, that's uncertain. So it's uh, it's an interesting time, but I think there are a lot of uh, a lot of upsides for the temple in the midst of all of this. You know, p- people ask us as rabbis all the time. They say, um, "When were you called? When did you know you wanted to become a rabbi?" I mean, we get that question like three times a day at least. So, so when did you know you wanted to be president of the temple? I don't know if there's a specific time, I think the way the temple works sometimes is uh, they pick you rather than you picking the temple. So when I found myself on this leadership path, uh, after uh, a year or two, I realized, oh, maybe this is something that other people are thinking about and I should think about too. And the more I thought about it, I thought, uh, what a, how much I love the temple, what a great place it was. And, um, you know, if, if, if I should be so fortunate to be selected as president, um, I'd like to keep on this path. So it was a gradual process. There was no aha movement. Well, you're no stranger to leadership in organizations and nonprofits. Tell us a little bit about kind of your background in the Jewish community and also just in, in leading organizations around the country. 
Uh, sure. Well, you know, going way back, I'm uh, a somewhat rare Atlanta native, so I was very involved in BBYO at a time when we met at the Jewish Community Center just down the street, uh, a few blocks north. And I was, as I was you know, president of my, uh, my chapter and did student government stuff and same leadership at school and student government. And then, I don't know, I, I just like to uh, spearhead things that I really enjoy and feel strongly about. So that included in the legal arena, uh, becoming a U.S. attorney in, in Atlanta. It, this was back during the Clinton administration and, and the Olympics. So uh, did some of that, some of this is Jewish, some of it's not, but did the American Jewish Committee, uh, which has a wonderful Atlanta chapter, I was president of that for, for a couple of years as our former president, Lauren Green was. And um, yeah, just done, just done different stuff, but I've always liked to be involved in organizations that I feel passionately about and in, including CARE, an international poverty organization. I was general counsel, Emory University, which is just wonderful on education and healthcare, and I was general counsel there. So I've basically been professionally unfocused, but always uh, trying to make things better as I unfocus. You've had these two really high power positions, right? That being a U.S. attorney and also being an SVP and uh, general counsel at Emory. From, from those two positions, uh, what have you learned that will apply to your work as president of the temple? At both positions, I took away the fact that unlike for-profit operations, though Emory is very much a business in many ways, uh, the sort of doing the right thing is at the bottom line of everything that you do. So it, at Emory, it was all about educating students and providing great health care at the Justice Department. Uh, which is especially relevant today. It's about uh, you know, doing justice and making the right decisions and fairness in society. So my takeaway is that personally, I'm driven, uh, as we all are, by you know, making money and all of that, but I'm especially driven by this idea of uh, fairness and justice and uh, what better place than the temple to focus on, on that. And then days like today, uh, or actually times like today, uh, you know, tikkun olam, repairing the world. So my takeaway is uh, if, if you're driven by something even beyond dollars, sometimes that's when you become most passionate. And you've been really um, uh, instrumental in uh, the formation of the Rothschild Social Justice Institute from, from its inception. Um, and that coupled with the amazing work you did helping to co-found Hands on Atlanta with Jim Green and other members of the congregation. I mean, it really shows your uh, social justice passion. Uh, uh, tell us uh, a little bit about why the Rothschild Social Justice Institute is so important to you. Well, it goes back to just growing up with my parents, Elaine and Miles Alexander, who were always into the civil rights movement at the you know, at all the right right and sort of uh, almost dangerous flex points. And so early on, I think that I grew up in that sort of environment, so that made an impression on me. And then growing up as a kid in Atlanta with uh, getting involved in BBYO, or it would have been MAFTI now if I was at the temple, but uh, getting involved in social justice causes, I realized that you know, there's, we're so fortunate, uh, the three of us and most people in our congregation to be where we are and we have such privilege and it's nice to be able to uh, figure out how to help others uh, have the same opportunity. So it's just sort of uh, in, in my 
fiber in my being and has been for a while. So with Rothschild social justice, it made so much sense with Rabbi Rothschild, uh, the history he brought to the temple and other, uh, other rabbis historically, rabbis Marx and Sugarman, and what they've done and the temple's done. When the idea came up that the Blank Foundation was going to generously make it possible for the temple to take our social justice work to the next level, and uh, I think it was Peter, you and John Amsler and Lauren, you might have been on the line too when you called up, said, we've got this opportunity and we're hoping you, maybe you could like help us form this. Uh, it was such a natural and it was so, so exciting to get that call. I just knew that uh, the temple as great, it would do even better things than we've done before and we've done so many great ones already. I think that social justice is such a huge part of what draws people to our congregation. What do you say when someone says, you know what? Um, I want to get involved, but I, I, or I'm not even sure I want to get involved in this way. Like, have you ever had conversations with, with friends or others about like, no, come on, like be hands-on, pardon the pun. Um, how do you convince people to, to give that, that kind of action a try and that activism a try? I find it's usually pretty easy because the temple has such a broad palette of opportunities. So I, generally find out from people what really moves them, what motivates them, what, what they would love to do. And uh, chances are we already have something going at the temple. We can plug them in, especially through uh, engagement or Rothschild Social Justice Institute. Uh, all the small groups are you know, manifold. And sometimes if it's something just a little different that nobody's quite doing, uh, then like, like both of you do, I say, well, why don't you spearhead this? It's not a not a big deal. You get a few friends, you can go have drinks, dinner, whatever, and then you get to do what you'd really like to do with the, uh, with the connection to the temple and the underpinnings of uh, not just doing the right thing, but a certain spirituality that comes with working with the temple. Other than the, the obvious goal of having the rabbis quadruple their salaries, what are, <laughs> what are your top goals uh, in, for your presidency at the temple? Well, there's there's so many. I'm going to look to the strategic plan and am looking to the strategic plan and we'll do so with the board because we spent so much time as a congregation working on that. But one opportunity that uh, rises to the surface right off the bat uh, comes in the wake of this COVID era. Uh, we've obviously done an incredible job, you, the clergy, and Mark and his staff of uh, transitioning to a virtual congregation. While our first priority and our, our, our prized way of operating will always be the physical presence and being with each other, which we value more now than ever. I think this whole uh, virtual congregation approach has opened our eyes to the possibility of what we can do to expand our reach and deepen our reach uh, here in Atlanta. So the physical piece, again, is the most important. We need for our temple to be uh, the actual center of what our activity is. But a priority for me is figuring out how we develop a, uh, a hybrid approach so that we're, we're in a position where more people do come to Shabbat services as is, as is happening now. We're in a position that if someone is ill or if they're too far away to make a service or attend a program because of Atlanta traffic, when Atlanta traffic comes back full, course, which of course it will, then they can from the privacy of their homes or with their families or from an office patch in and really be part of the temple. So uh, I know that, for instance, 
we had talked in the strategic plan about trying to reach uh, communities well outside of Atlanta. And it seemed like it was a little futuristic to talk about, oh, we'll beam our services in and people will gather and we'll have the same look and feel. I think what's happened, uh, again, in the wake of COVID is we've realized that that really is possible. So part of a priority of mine will be figuring out how we, uh, how we take what we've learned and we make the temple even bigger and better so that we reach more people. There's that saying, necessity is the mother of invention. And there was a sense that all of a sudden we just had to go virtual. And I think you're right, the idea of broadening our reach. I'm hearing from people who had trouble driving at night or had medical issues and, and weren't able to be in our building very often. And they, in a certain way, feel less isolated because we're doing more um, to reach them in their homes. And so there's, I think, a lot of hope that we won't just go back to our building and, and not make changes. Yeah, um, well, if necessity is the mother invention, uh, we just gave birth to triplets. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Well, we, uh, Kent, you uh, stepped into the presidency. Uh, every president comes to the temple uh, having accomplished so much, and it's something that's really incredible. But you walked in on day one having just written a book, uh, The Suspect, about the uh, 96 Atlanta uh, Olympic bombing, which also became a feature film. Uh, and I highly recommend, uh, of course, if you haven't read the book and haven't seen the movie, it really is a, a must read and a must see. But uh, how did you decide to write a book? And I, and I understand that you're writing another one now. Well, I decided to write the book uh, years ago. In 1996, the Olympics was in Atlanta, 2 million visitors, 50,000 people in the park on the night of this big bombing. I happened to be the United States attorney, and I'd written Richard Jewell, ultimately, his clearance letter uh, three months after the bombing. I knew at the time that it was just a story that should be told. I also realized I only knew half the story. Turns out I knew way less than half. But I, was, I decided to write the book after I left the U.S. Attorney's Office in 1997, but you know, family gets in the way, jobs get in the way, that sort of thing. And then uh, at a point I realized uh, a lot of the main characters, in fact, all the main characters had passed away. And I uh, thought, you know, the time has come just to do this. So I was just fortunate to uh, join up with Kevin Sa Salowin, who is a former Wall Street Journal editor. And we spent what was supposed to be a year on it. That was what I told Kevin, and it turned out to be five, but uh, it all worked out well. So. I, it was just, uh, it, it was a, I love narrative nonfiction. I love books that read like novels and a guy named Eric Larson is sort of my hero in the Truman Capote mold. And I decided to give it a shot. So this was fun. It worked out. And I'm doing another one now on the Mariel Boatlift, the Marielitos in 1980. Uh, there were 125,000 Cubans who hit the coast of Florida. Uh, Jimmy Carter was president. He said, we welcome your huddled masses. Anybody wants to leave can. And, uh, Castro said, all right, we'll take this. And he makes this announcement. Anybody who wants to leave can leave from the port of Mariel. And then he, Castro emptied out his prisons and insane asylums and feathered those folks in. So the book will go from the, that scene uh, over six months, which was, by the way, the opening scene in Scarface with Al Pacino. He was a Marielito. All the way through 1987 in Atlanta, where the, uh, there was a huge riot at the Atlanta Federal Penitentiary. It's still the longest prison takeover in U.S. history, 121 hostages. 
great characters, fascinating things that went inside, on inside. And um, I used to prosecute cases out of the prison, out of the pen, so I kind of know the place. And I just think that'll make a fun book. So my, um, of course, my main job will be being president of the temple, but then I've got this sidelight of uh, writing a book. I remember when we went to Cuba, actually on a temple trip in 2010, you've done a lot of travel with, with the temple. You've been to, to Israel and Cuba. And um, what is it like to explore places that aren't necessarily Jewish, like Cuba, through a Jewish lens? And do you think that that trip inspired your desire to write this book? Uh, any, any travel anywhere in a way is through a Jewish lens, I think, for all of us, whether it's uh, upfront or not. On my honeymoon, my wife and I were in Greece and we went to Rhodes and we ended up going to the synagogue uh, in, in Rhodes. And in it, they've got a listing of all of these families' names and people who were wiped out and taken to concentration camps. And it was Sephardic. And there were a lot of names like Russo and Arigetti, who I recognize from Atlanta. So in the most unlikely ways, I think when we all travel, you run across something through a Jewish lens. In Cuba, uh, I was thinking about this, sure, in Cuba, because I'd never been to Cuba, and I knew about the Marielitos coming over, and I knew about, uh, in, in effect, what turned out to be uh, its indefinite detention in Atlanta of all of these inmates. They were called detainees, but there's a thin line between indefinite detention and slavery and in, you know, that kind of imprisonment. So I, I really, I guess that's through a Jewish lens too. And then, of course, you go to Israel, you don't need to be with the temple, but it's great to be with the temple, but it's hard to go to Israel without looking at it through a Jewish lens. Life is kind of through a Jewish lens. Beautifully said. Kent, it has been so great to have you uh, on with us today. Um, um, not only to allow you to share a little bit of your vision and yourself with your temple family and the world, our billions and billions of listeners. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but, uh, um, you know, I, I just want to take a, a minute to thank you already for everything you've done with us and for us and uh, for, for helping us lead in, in a time that's really hard to lead, uh, given all of the, the challenges in the world that, that we're, we're facing right now. So um, from our perspective, uh, you're the right president at the right time, and uh, it's really going to be an honor for all of us to get to roll up our sleeves and and work with you in uh, helping the temple to become an even better uh, uh, synagogue and institution and, and reaching out to our world. Yeah, well, uh, thanks. Uh, the, the, on, the honor is mine. Uh, we've, we've got an amazing clergy, the two of you, of course, and the entire clergy, Mark and the staff. The board is fantastic in the congregation. So, uh, you know, it's, I'm, I could not be more honored and so happy to do this. Thank you, Kent. And thank you to all of you for joining us for this episode of the podcast at the Temple. We know that there is a lot going on in the world. We encourage you to follow all of our episodes by looking at our website, www.the-temple.org, where you'll find resources from the Rothschild Social Justice Institute um, for ways to be active and to be engaged in our communal response to all of the events of the world, including ways to stay connected during COVID. And so, anything else, Peter? Nope, it's, it's been great to talk to, to Kent. It's been uh, great to see all your faces. I know everyone else can't see us, but we can see each other and that's been fun. And um, uh, 
please, you know, the, the, we say it all the time, the temple is open. It's open virtually right now. And we're starting to move towards getting ourselves closer and closer into the building with a really thoughtful phased in program. But, but join us for all of our virtual activities and soon some in-person activities. This has been another episode of The Podcast from The Temple. Where we inspire lives and transform our world.